When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're asking the question, can God set a table in the wilderness? Can God do that? Can God meet our needs? It's a big question. It's the one we've been asking for a long time. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs is placed food, safety at the bottom. You got to have that to really think about anything else. As the, the old saying goes, we're all about five missed meals before a revolution happens. Um, there's something about hunger that drives us to make radical changes and to speak our minds. That's the basic human need to sustain life. And once we have that need met, we kind of move to the higher needs um, of relationship and meaning and all the way to the top of Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization, which I believe he said that Jesus Christ had reached it and Maslow himself had reached it, but not many other people. Um, But his basic concept is pretty consistent throughout all of human life and history, and even in our lives. When we have our very most basic needs met, um, we can start thinking about bigger things, bigger, uh, maybe less uh, vital to our existence needs to more about meaning and how we fit into the world and why we're here and things like that. And here in the desert, in Numbers and our Psalm, Psalm 78, Numbers 11 and Psalm 78, we see this drama played out of the cycle of judgment and complaint and restoration um, that is going to be played out in the life of the people of God in the wilderness over and over and over again. It's the same exact cycle again and again and again. Have you ever noticed in your life that you pretty much deal with the same problem over and over and over again? Um, I'm just, maybe I'm just talking about myself here, but it seems like the very, at the very heart of my most troubling problems in life seem to be quite similar to the ones that I had when I was seven or eight or 10 or 12 or 16 or 20 or 25 or 30, even though the the, uh, the, the staging of the play is different, kind of like a Shakespearean play set in the modern era. Um, someone reminded me of Richard III the other day, um, where Richard III plays a Hitler-like character, because that's kind of who he is. Um, or is it Richard II? I think it's Richard III. Um, and he wears like a German uniform, and he's a tyrant. He's an evil guy. And, um, Shakes- and the, the adaption of the play is set in modern pre-war Germany, um, whereas the original was done with the actual Richard III in England. But you get the point that all the same kind of human dramas play out in that play, and it's just a little bit different costumes and haircuts and things like that. Um, and I feel like some of my problems over my life are like that. They are different settings, different um, presenting characters and all sorts of other things. But the same existential or inner 
inside me issue is the same. Um, and if you boil it down, all of our shared hardships and struggles and issues come down to some very basic human needs. Am I loved? Am, can I trust? Am I safe? These very big questions that we ask ourselves and don't know the answer to many times, um, those seem to be recurring themes. But I think for each of us, we have particular uh, musical notes that are played on those themes over and over again. Or maybe another analogy might be that we keep returning to the same battlefield um, that we fought at a long time ago. And we seem to like still keep coming back to the same old struggle. And that struggle is played out in this drama in Numbers 11 and Psalm 78 for this people of God, um, even as our struggles are um, in the same kind of cycle uh, many times. There is a complaining that goes on. Um, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And as and that sort of sets the tone for the whole story that the people are complaining, but the Lord is hearing them. Remember, this is how they got out of Egypt. God went and told Moses, I have heard their complaints. I have heard their cries. And now when they're in Egypt, it's sort of a justifiable complaint and cry in many ways. We say, wow, God launched this whole program of deliverance through Moses and Aaron and Miriam and all those others that stood up against the Pharaoh in those early days of the Exodus. And then Pharaoh backed down and let, let God's people go. And they went, and they went out into the desert um, and through the Red Sea in great deliverance. And that complaint was heard by God. And then we come to this other complaint here in the desert, and God still is listening. We ought to take comfort in that, that God is still listening to complaints. God has listened to our cries when we were children, God listened to our cries when we were young people. God listened to our cries when we are the age that we are. And God will listen to our cries in the age that we will become. God will always listen. And the response of God, even though it's pretty rough and harsh, it's a response. I think the scariest thing for us to experience on this earth is the absence of God, the silence of God the hiddenness of God. Uh, many Christian writers and others in the Old Testament have written about this and talked about this and lived this. But sometimes it seems like we're not being heard by God. And God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt and fear and estrangement. But ultimately, God is listening. The timing of God is God's timing. And it says that God gets upset God has feelings too. God has big feelings in this story. God's anger is kindled like you start a fire. You start it with one little match, and then it slowly grows into a flame. And this fire of God burns around the edges of the camp, perhaps through lightning strikes or something. So everyone's real aware that God is listening. And the people cry out to Moses. They've cried out to God, or to each other, or to the air. And now they're crying out to Moses. And Moses prays and the fire stops. Now you can see in this system, 
that everything is depending on Moses. The people have hardship. God is angry. God punishes them. They cry to Moses. Moses says, stop. God stops. And this cycle is a very immature system. It's not, it's not a, a system where people feel like they can be heard by God without this backlash of anger. And so in this chapter, we see the situation changing with their relationship with God and with God's relationship to them. In this very story, we see a shift in how God deals with God's people. God is not a static monument in the sky. Kind of like you go see a statue of Stephen F. Austin at the State Cemetery or Sam Houston in Houston or George Washington at UT or in DC or God is not a static, immovable object. God is in relationship with God's people constantly. God is in relationship with you right now and me right now and with us as a community right now. And so God is also adapting and moving in different ways, just as the people are waking up to the harsh reality of life in the desert. The wilderness, the desert is a time of transition. And in times of transition, times of upheaval, times of uncertainty, times we're moving from one thing to the other, are very vulnerable times for us as they were for the people of God. And they are times where we indulge in our regrets and our nostalgia and the ways that we wish we had been or the ways that we wish our lives had been or whether we wish things were different now. And so their, their weeping is centered around these vegetables. They're sort of having a Veggie Tales moment where they miss all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. They're just like, you can't grow anything in the desert. When you're moving from place to place, from watering hole to watering hole to feed your sheep and goats on the meager grasses of the wilderness, um, you have to keep moving. There's just not enough fodder for them to, to consume in one place. We've got 600,000 people, according to chapter 11. So multiply that by, you know, 10 to 20 sheep apiece or goats apiece, and you've got a considerable um, number of mouths to feed. So they're constantly moving. They can't plant crops. They're far away from the ocean and the rivers where they used to pull fish out of the Nile River. Um, nostalgia is such a weird thing. Have you noticed that in your life? Like the kind of things that we miss from parts of our lives that we often were very happy to get away from, like Egypt for the Israelites. Um, and yet those memories come back of some of the good times, the good things that we experience. Memory is such a weird and slippery thing, kind of has its, a life of its own inside our imaginations and mind. The very river that Pharaoh's soldiers threw their babies into is the river that they are missing terribly. This is the harsh truth of our memories and nostalgia. They are deceptive. They need to be as far away from the Nile River as possible. It is a dangerous river for their babies. It is a dangerous river for them. And yet, this is what they long for and are complaining about, and are sad about. And all they have is manna. Now, Numbers 11 gives a little sales pitch for manna. Little, 
little uh, commercial break here. It's the, it looks like a coriander seed. It was the color of gum resin. The people went around and gathered it and they milled it, they ground it, boiled it in pots, made little cakes. The taste, um, they baked it with oil in the cakes, with the cakes, and it was so tasty. It doesn't say it was tasty at the very end, but I'm adding that detail. But it was like dew that came down in the morning. It was beautiful. It was like the Baja Blast discovery um, at Taco Bell of, uh, of treats, a uh, tasty thing. Uh, I got to see my oldest son on Sunday, and uh, we went to a gas station to get some supplies um, to go out on the water, and there was a Baja Blast in the refrigerated section of that gas station. Um, and he was delighted by that, and so was I in sharing his joy with him. Uh, it was a delight to discover Baja Blast, a very rare find in the gas station uh, soda selections. Um, so I'm just adding that detail, not in the original text, but it was like that Mountain Dew Baja Blast. It was a wonderful thing. But the people, all they can do is weep. They are weeping. Now maybe there's other things happening here. They are weeping at the entrance of their tents and Moses hears it. God has better ears than Moses does in this story. God can hear them complaining long before Moses can. Um, Moses now hears their weeping. They have gone from complaining, just talking, to actual weeping. There is a lot of unprocessed trauma in the lives of these Israelite people. They have witnessed horrific things. They have gone through torturous, a torturous journey, a terrifying deliverance. They, in many ways, are on the knife edge of, of falling back into that abyss of despair. They are, there is weeping. And sometimes when we have sweeps of nostalgia come over us, when we are aware of what we have lost in life, all we can do is weep. That's all we can do. And they do this. And Moses hears them. They're at the entrance of their tents weeping. And then God becomes very angry. And then we have this almost comedic dialogue between Moses and God. He says, um, why have you treated me so badly? God, why did you judge me by giving me responsibility for all these people? Why am I responsible for all of their emotional needs, all of their physical needs, all of their justice needs, all their needs? Why is all the blame being put on me? The blame is not being put on Moses. The blame is being put on God. And yet Moses stands as a priest. He is of the tribe of Levi. He is the priest that stands between God and God's people. He is feeling it, the weight of this. And then he, this comedic dialogue gives, goes, Did I conceive this people? Are they all my kids? Um, did I give birth to them? Am I their mother? Have you ever had to say to somebody, Am I your mother? You know, like, this is getting ridiculous. Um, did I have to nurse them and carry my bosom and um, all these other things? And they come to me weeping and say, we want meat to eat and give it to us. Like I can just produce meat for them in this wilderness. Um, what kind of ridiculous situation has sprung up? And the solution of God, or Moses then calls out for God to kill him. Put me in one of those lightning strikes, God. Burn me up. Make it quick. Get it over with. I'm done. 
I've had it. Moses is finally being honest with God. It is when we speak to God in our authentic voice that God is honest with us. And that relationship becomes one that is a lot more like a person talking with their friend, as we know Moses did. Moses talked with God, as this text says, with a ma- as a man talks with his friend. It is a conversation between equals in many ways. It is a conversation between people that are in mutual relationship with each other, even though there is a vast difference between them. Essentially, their problem is the same, and having the same problem with somebody is the most uniting experience in the world. And Moses, then the fire um, burns against them, and all um, and the solution, which we will look at tomorrow, happens. But the, the first solution for this is that God makes a promise. I'm going to give you meat, not for two days, not for five days, not for seven days, but I think for a whole month. Um, God will give them plenty of meat to eat, and nobody can believe him. He also um, changes the leadership situation um, that, that God ordains the elders of the people to stand with Moses, to stand with Moses uh, and to meet the needs of the people. You cannot bear it all by yourself, he says to Moses. So tomorrow you shall eat meat. So God meets their very real need for food, even though manna has supplied it. But um, God meets their, their bigger need for, are, are we going to make it? But also God meets the need of Moses, that he cannot bear this all alone. That we see when God meets the needs of big groups that God also cares for each single person in that group. And that is the conundrum of all of community life in a church. How do we need, meet the needs of everyone? And also, how do we meet the needs of each individual person as they go through their particular struggles at that particular time they go through them? What we do know is that God is enough. The line from the psalm, um, which we don't have in the text in Numbers, but the psalmist puts it into the mouth of one of the complainants against Moses. And the complaint that they cry is, can God set a table in the wilderness? There have been times in my life where I have felt very much alone. And I've wondered, is God enough? Can I make it? Can God meet my needs? Or do I have to take the shortcuts that I think I need to meet my needs? Can God set a table in the wilderness? Can I have enough to keep going? And the answer to that question can God set a table in the wilderness, is yes, God can, and God does, and God will. And if you're struggling with that promise today, hope you can hang on to that, that the answer to your question, can God set a table in my wilderness? Can God put a table of food in front of me in my wilderness to meet my needs? Can God do that? The answer is yes, God will. God does, God has, God is. Amen.
Do they remember Basil the Great? Basil the Great? Um, he was a bishop born around 329. So he lived right in the time period where Christianity was becoming a legal religion to be worshipped in the Roman Empire and with the Edict of Milan, which tolerated Christian worship and 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 made it very clear that local magistrates couldn't punish Christians arbitrarily and steal their land and stuff from them. But then um, the transition to making it the um, main religion of the Roman Empire. Um, many people see it as the official religion of the Roman Empire, but that was much later um, than even Constantine. Constantine funded both Christian churches and pagan temples um, throughout his lifetime because he wanted to be a good emperor for everybody. Um, and it's much later that, that Christianity becomes the official and then the only religion of that empire. He was educated with a classical education. He was born into wealth and privilege. Um, and he could have continued with this academic life if it wasn't for the ministry and calling of his sister, Macrina. Macrina is really the um, star of the family of the great Cappadocians. Cappadocia is right there on the Baltic Sea. It is the mythic and historic land of the Amazons um, that many old ancient writers wrote about, where you get Wonder Woman and those sorts of things. Um, and she is the main influence on his life. Macrina founded a monastic order for women in Anessi, and was fi and fired by her example, Basil made a journey to study the life of the anchorites in Egypt based on her example and elsewhere. He studied this and came back to Cappadocia and founded a monastery for men, the first monastery. So in many ways, he and his sister are the, um, and she has her own feast day in the calendar um, as well, um, the first monasteries where they compiled uh, rules assisted by Gregory of Nazianzus, another friend of theirs, um, rules for how monks ought to live in community and how solitary anchorites ought to live in a community. And this formed the basis of all the Eastern Orthodox monasteries that you see today around the world. There's one here near New Braunfels, um, an Orthodox monastery there, and there's probably others around Texas that I don't know about that are still here. In the founding of this church, we sought to found a monastery first, um, a place of prayer, regular prayer, where he'd pray for the needs of the world. So we follow his example as well. Um, and they also would send kids to study at these monasteries to become church and state leaders. He was ordained as a priest in 364, right at the height of the Arian controversy, um, Christians who did not believe that Jesus was fully God. The Arians were, had amazing hymns and songs and were very catchy tunes that um, led to the outlawing of, of uh, church music for a long time because the Arian hymns were so good um, and it was hard for the Trinitarian Christians to compete with their music. I'm simplifying a lot of church history there, but I think it's important to note that this was more than just thoughts people were thinking in their head, but really big cultural shifts that were happening in the church. Um, somehow, by a very narrow margin, he was elected Bishop of Caesarea and the Metropolitan of Cappadocius and the Exarch of Pontus. 
Um, you can see that Orthodox Christianity at that time was really getting into their really fancy titles, which um, many Western churches like ours have abandoned. He was relentless in his efforts to restore the faith and discipline of the clergy and to defend the Nicene Creed or the Trinity. And then um, Emperor Valens rose to power and sought to get rid of him. Um, so to, to do that, um, to, to get rid of Basil, he divided his diocese into two, but Basil pulled a fast one on him, forcing his brother Gregory, um, who was also one of the great Cappadocians, to become the Bishop of Nyssa. Anyway, all this political controversy led to some really good books. Um, on the Holy Spirit was one of his um, good ones and others. Um, one of the things that Basil gave us was um, a way for soldiers who had experienced combat to come back home. Um, he would require that even baptized soldiers, soldiers who were Christians who served in the army, would go through a two-year purification process after they left the army, um, very similar to the process that new, newly baptized people would go through a two-year or three-year process called catechumenate, um, where they would learn and study and not take communion for three years um, before they were baptized. Um, this was largely a reaction to the um, the the uh, the privilege and power that baptized people had in ancient Rome um, at this time, and they were seeking to produce real Christians who actually love Jesus and follow Jesus rather than just wanting to get a government job or something like that. Um, so the catechumen is a reaction to that, but it had a implication for the veterans that were coming back. Um, we pray one of his prayers. Um, it was entirely proper, he asserted, to adore God in liturgical prayer, not only with the traditional words, glory to the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, but also with the formula, glory to the Father with the Son together with the Holy Spirit. Our uh, doxology or Gloria Patri, glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, um, is still carried on from his original emphasis. He did not, I don't believe, create that saying for us to say, but um, we, he certainly emphasized its use in churches so that we still say it today. We say it at the end of our Psalms. Um, as you know, if you've ever chanted them or said them, it's a little tricky at the end where you, it's like catches you off guard or you're like, oh, I wasn't ready for that. Um, but we do that because we believe that the Trinity is infused in every part of the Bible, um, not just in the parts that name it, but the places where, um, like the Psalms, where we see the Trinity functioning in the Psalms through our prayer. He was concerned with the poor, and when he died, he willed um, to the city of Caesarea a completely new town, built on his estate with housing for the poor, with, for a hospital, with staff, and a church for the poor, and a hospice for travelers. Um, his sister died quite young of breast cancer in a well-documented holy death um, that we will get to when we get to Macrina's life, but he died shortly after at the age of 50 in 379, two years before the Second Ecumenical Council, which affirmed the Trinity for the whole church. Almighty God, you revealed to your church your eternal being of glorious majesty and perfect love as one God and Trinity of persons. Give us grace that, like your bishop Basil of Caesarea, 
we may continue steadfast in the confession of this faith and constant in our worship of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for you live and reign forever and ever. Amen. I invite your intercessions or thanksgivings at this time. How can we pray for each other today?